quest on the march. It has been nearly two years since our adventurers have set on their grand, illustrious quest, and they are about to reach new peaks. So far, they have endured many perils and uncertainties, such as a Frenchman on a tightrope in New York City, the decommissioning of a specific Firefly-class transport ship, and one overly dramatic scene on Mars featuring a nerdy science guy turned into a blue god-like figure. Gladly, a record of their private experiences is being kept in the Culture Quest Essentials Guide, an Enchiridion that will surely one day be set in stone and studied by many. The quest had humble beginning. There were hopes of running one's horizons and the closing of cultural gaps, but it has since become a more magnificent undertaking, as today our adventurers will bravely attempt to discuss one of cinema's greatest achievements, Citizen Kane. What does the future hold for the three wanderers on this virtual journey down pop culture lane? Hello, and welcome to the Culture Quest. We are but humble adventurers, and today our faces will remain in the shadows for the whole duration of the podcast. With me, as always, are Peter. Hello. And Barrio. Hello. And I am Inon. Thank you, the listeners at home, for taking part in our noble quest. Today, we discuss a movie that appears in most greatest movies of all times lists, 1941's Citizen Kane. Directed, produced, and starring Orson Welles. Orson Welles. I keep saying his name, Welles. Co-written by Orson Welles and Herman J. Mankiewicz. I said on the last episode that I chose this movie for us to watch in kind of an attempt to sneak in another Surefire Culture Quest Essentials Guide inductee uh, before a two-year anniversary episode. And it was definitely a factor in this choice. But really, I I wanted to watch this movie for years now. Uh, When we were kind of workshopping the premise of this podcast, I thought to myself that this is going to be how I'm going to finally have the motivation to watch this movie from 1941. And uh, we've done that. But before we talk about Citizen Kane, let's do some tavern talk. (laughs) So, on today's tavern talk, we're asking ourselves... Science has discovered a new vitamin that reduces the need for sleep to about 3 to 4 hours per night. What do you do with the extra time, and at what hours do you choose to go to sleep? Who wants to go first? I'll go first. Mm. You always go first. (laughs) (laughs) I always ask the question, Byron never answers. (laughs) I don't want to seem too eager. (laughs) (laughs) Like Peter. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always excited for these tavern talks. Like, it's the stuff that... I don't typically talk about this stuff. It, like, it's kind of like not, what do you call it, water cooler talk. No, no. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like if I was like, oh, if you could only sleep four hours a day and at that, by that point, it's like, <laughs> someone will just be like, oh, no, I need eight. Anyway, see ya. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, but if you could. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm that guy. Anyway. Um, yeah, I, I am not totally, but a little bit obsessed with um, sort of sleep and like how to how to become a productive sleeper. So um, basically I need about, I say I need eight, but I guess I'm capable of seven. So I'm not one of those people that needs nine. So like I'm, I I consider myself a little bit fortunate, but um, what I'm bad at is actually the getting to sleep and staying asleep. So essentially I wish this superpower of getting, oh, you only need four hours a night. I wish I could just schedule in that four hours because, or even if I could just schedule in eight hours, but I just know when it's coming, that would just be such a superpower. But if I needed four, that means like, even with my slow routine of like 
taking half an hour to get sleep and all that stuff. It would take the night time from sort of like 10 p.m. to like 8 a.m. That would become like a very productive slash enjoyable period, which is punctuated by like a four-hour sleep at some point. Whereas now, like I need the full like 10 p.m. onwards to sort of get to sleep and like, you know, get all that time. So it would just open up the evening. So it would be awesome. But I think what I'd do with the extra time, to be honest, is probably, I'd probably like delay a few things. So I'd delay like dinner. So if I'm having dinner at sort of like about 7 p.m., I'd probably just extend that pre-dinner vibe till like probably like 8 or 9, I reckon. I'd probably be having stuff at 9. And then I'd probably like, honestly, I would be able to watch like a movie every single day. Like if I, if I only have four hours sleep, that's like, I guess a net of like four hours gained and movies like two hours. So it's like, you know, you could do like super productive things. And this is such like a, a, um, a thought that I have like, oh, if only I had this, then I'd be able to do X, you know, like, which is a bad <laughs> thought pattern. I think like, um, that's what stops people making podcasts and stuff like that. Like, oh, if only I had this microphone, you know, but like, I seriously think, like, if I had, like, a four-hour window of which I needed to get sleep into, I feel like I could do a lot. It, I, I'd probably want to make it mostly productive. So, and I, I would count watching a movie as pretty productive yeah. in terms of, like, a good use of time. Yeah, I'd probably I'd probably try to fit in a movie and maybe, like, not not study, but probably, like, reading a book or or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, I totally get what you mean. Like when I thought about this question at first, I tried to imagine how society as a whole would change if, like, maybe the standard business hours would change somehow. Uh, but that, that that ended up too complicated to consider. So I just figured things would mostly kind of stay the same. And if I could sleep three to four hours a night on a regular basis, I'd just you know go to sleep later than I do now, and I don't know, get up at around the same time I do now, and my daily routine would be fairly similar. Uh, to what it is. And and what I would change is, I think at around 11, when I usually go to bed, I'd go on a short walk, like a stroll. Oh, that'd be uh, cool, actually. For about, yeah, for about like 30 minutes to kind of take a break after a long day, because even though you have a few hours left, you've, you've still done a full day of work and, and everything you usually do. So I, I, I take like a 30 minutes walk in kind of a quiet, relaxing area. And then I, I think... I'd use the time instead of sleeping for, for reading. Like, I would love to have that time to just sit comfortably and quietly with, you know, either a book, there are plenty of books I want to get to, or maybe a bunch of articles to get into. Like, I have a reading list that slowly just gets bigger and bigger, and it mostly contains articles about science or technology or some about sports even. Um, has a few articles, you know, that tell the stories of interesting people or events, and and yeah, at the moment, I kind of find it hard to find time to sit down and read as much as I would have wanted to. Because even if you have like 20 minutes here and there, it takes time to get into the, the, the pace of reading, you know, and to get mm, the, yeah. your mind kind of quiet and, and focused. So that's mostly what I, I'd want to use that time. Yeah, I think the, the nighttime has a different vibe to daytime. I feel like your focus almost like is restricted. So... Um, restricted in a good way, like in terms of it's, it's narrowed down to like a smaller field of view, kind of, obviously you're seeing less people, but I think it's like in the daytime, if you're doing nothing, there's always like, oh, well, someone could text you or you could text someone else. Yeah. And it's like, 
that's all on the cards. Like your your deck is full. Like yeah. you can just play any cards you want. Whereas when it's night, you're kind of like restricted into like the moves you can play. You know, you can either do like the um, go to sleep early or you can like, you know, do some relaxation or you can like do something semi-productive like read or, you know, podcast or something like that. And that's basically like your options. You can't like run errands and yeah. you can't, you can get work done, but it's not like the same, like yeah. depending on. You're not expected to get anything real yeah, productive yeah, yeah. done. You're not on the clock. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I probably don't even capitalize on it as much. Like I get a lot of stuff done during the day and then just like don't do anything at night, which is like something I should improve. But yeah, I, I think the best things to do, like if you could p- plan out your day, like obviously, you know, not everything can be done at once. But if you had to pick your times, like for me, I always do like sort of emails and all that stuff after lunch, like in that zone where you don't really need your concentration to be like super high. Like I just take advantage of that and just get all this like mindless stuff done. And then morning for me is like the concentration, like sort of get all the work done between sort of like 8am and midday-ish. And then like night has always been traditionally like movies and music and all that stuff like that. But I reckon if you could like get this four hour sleep thing down, you could push like all the things you do like afternoon you could just enjoy them way more if it was at night, you know, like no, going yeah. for a walk would just be so much cooler at like 11 p.m. than it would at like 4 p.m. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. But yeah, I, I think if if we were serious and this like sleep thing, I don't know what would be a similar example, but I mean like I guess a similar like, kind of like paradigm shift would be like before there was like birth control and stuff like that, like where that just like overnight just changed things. I feel like if there was some sort of similar drug of like, oh, if everyone just gets this shot or this some sort of nutritional difference in their diet, oh, you can, you know, reduce your sleep need by like four hours. I feel like the bad things would just expand. Like, so I feel like shops and stuff like that, like people would just be working till like midnight and stuff like that. Like, because if there's like opportunity for someone to make money, there'll be like a vacuum of like, oh, well, no one's working this time. And there'll be like everyone who's just like prepared to do it and stuff like that. And it was just like a race to the bottom of like, you know, what people are willing to do for money. I can just imagine that happening. So (laughs) it's kind of like the situation would be best if it was like you, (laughs) you and you only get this like extra four hours and this everyone else is a sucker. (laughs) Yeah. If you get like four extra hours a day, you'd you'd be expected to work those, those hours. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a a good point actually. It's not that you would be expected to, it's just someone else would be like, oh, I can do it. <laughs> it's just like, fuck. <laughs> like, imagine, maybe we're already living in a world where, where people used to sleep much longer, <laughs> but then thanks to uh, outdoor lighting, then people stay oh, out that's so true. late. That's so true. Yeah. We're, we're thinking about four hours of sleep just because <laughs> we're not aware of uh, how it already shortened. Yeah, oh my God, <laughs> that is actually so true. There's this other universe or history that's like where people are just like going to sleep for 12 hours. Like, Man, can you imagine if it was just like we only needed eight? what we would if do we only needed like, eight <laughs> oh man i would be like doing painting and like sculptures and stuff and it's us who just like work like nine to five <laughs> exactly, <laughs> just like yeah. go home iron clothes the next day <laughs> my daily routine is shifting towards the late like i i i, I start working relatively late around 10 ish but because of that i also finish working late and I'm pretty much in meetings all day long, so my meetings end up around 
uh, 6 or 7 p.m., mm. then I get a couple hours of work. And if I also try to squeeze a workout, this is it. It's around 11. And then, and then I keep thinking, well, I need to go to sleep pretty soon mm. because like this, this will probably start all over again. But I usually find myself up around until 1 a.m. And, and I'm feeling bad for it. It, it always sucks. So if, if I had a couple extra hours, it would be amazing. But I, I tend to think that I would <laughs> fill them with work as well, <laughs> which is less exciting. Yeah. But, um, you know, like one of the things that I kind of carry at the end of the day is how much work is still left to be done, which is a bit frustrating. Yeah. So I would probably use it to, to do some more work, but that's a very boring answer. So <laughs> so I would I would like to, to think that working on, on hobbies would be nice. Something I've been thinking about lately is like how to make my like evenings and like hobby time kind of like more fulfilling, you know, like how instead of like just being like, oh, well, yep, I guess I can watch a movie. Like how do I like kind of like systematize it to make it like, you know, like, oh, every Tuesday, Thursday, I watch a movie and stuff like that. But what I fall into the trap of is just like now I'm just doing the same things, but I've just got like a time where I'm meant to do them. And it's just, it doesn't make it more interesting. It actually just adds stress because I'm like, <laughs> shit, what happens if I don't, you know, like take a bath? <laughs> you know, like it's, I don't know, like, I feel like some people, I think this is what becoming way more common now in like the age of like entrepreneurs and stuff. But some people kind of treat their like personal life like a business a little bit, you know, like they'll send calendar invites to friends and stuff like that. And it's, it's very like, trying to like maximize everything, like maximize like, you know, the time that they spend with X amount of friend and stuff like that, trying to spread their time and stuff like that. And then there's, I've got other friends who are like super serendipitous, you know, like they just won't reach out just whenever they get an invite, they'll just feel, oh, yeah, I might rock up. And like, I just, I can't make a value judgment about it. It's just, I, I figure there's probably some happy medium, but yeah, I'm just not sure how deliberate to be in terms of like, you know, do I organize a games night like every fortnight or do I just see what happens, you know? Yeah. It's, I just don't know what to do with, <laughs> with this new idea I have. So let me ask you, we, we all agreed that if we could sleep less at night, we'd push our um, go to sleep time into the night. But yeah, yeah, yeah. All wake up at the same time. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, I think wake <laughs> up at the same time. Do you consider maybe going to sleep at the same time and waking up like four hours earlier and maybe <sighs> that just doing seems some stuff so then? bad. Like, I just would hate to be up at that time. Like, I I guess I can't really imagine a scenario where I'm not tired waking up at, like, midnight, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, or, like, I guess probably a bit later, maybe, like, 2 a.m., 3 a.m. or something like that. But, uh, yeah, that, that it just feels like, now, nah, I, I think I, I think I'd want to keep, like, the good vibes going from the afternoon, like, because when you, when you clock off at work, right, you know, you go home, it's all, like, good vibes and stuff. But I feel like, say you went to sleep at, say, like 10 p.m., right? So you'd have mm. kind of like this sort of five-hour period of like chilling out and doing your own stuff. Then you go to sleep, say you wake up at two, 3 a.m., right? Just build a buffer there of like sort of one hour. Then 3 a.m., you kind of like, oh, well, I, you know, looking at the time, like, oh, got to be at work in like five hours. So, you know. As well just get into my work clothes and sort of just potter about a bit, you know. Like I feel like you'd be in work mode. I feel like you'd got to you got to maximize that sort of 
chill zone, you know? Yeah. yeah. Don't you ever get a feeling at the end of the day before going to sleep that you don't want to go to sleep? Yeah, you want to stay up. Yeah, you still didn't have enough of the, of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I, that that yeah, happens probably like once every fortnight, I'd say to me. And it's like a, such a bad feeling. It's, I'm one of those people that kind of feels like I got to go to sleep. Like it, otherwise, I'm just going to be like a walking zombie. And it sucks because it's like, oh, man, could have just done something with this time or like should be doing something for this time. But yeah, yeah, that kind of sucks. I have to say, when I was a student, like I used to read and write a lot in the evenings. And then when I finished like my first degree and started my second one, I suddenly had to read a lot for school. And suddenly, like in the evenings, I just didn't have enough energy to read and write. So mm. I, I used to get up at like eight every morning. So instead, I, I started getting up at like 5.30. And, you know, I just stayed in my pajamas. I'd made myself a cup of coffee. Then I'd sit down and just read and write for a while. And then by the time I'd usually wake up, I'd be all like awake and, and like in a good mood. And then I used to go to university and I don't know, it was an amazing way to start the day. Yeah. It didn't last too long. I, I did it for like a couple of months because who wants to get up at 5.30? But uh, <laughs> but, but it, it, there, there was a positive side to that. Mm. Yeah, I, I did a similar thing. I used to wake up at like 5.30 and do a gym session before I went to work. It lasted longer than I thought. It lasted probably like five weeks. It was it actually like... I don't know how much of it was like, oh man, that gym session was good. Now I feel good during the day and how much it was kind of like, oh, I've done a gym session. I've woken up like super early. So better feel some good benefits from this. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, it, I think a little bit of it was like, well, yeah, no, I feel really good now. <laughs> but I think a little, I, I, I did feel good. Like it wasn't like I felt like worse than normal and I was trying to like justify it. Like it did objectively, I think, feel like not too bad. So yeah, at the moment, I'm just waiting to move into like a new place and it has a gym in the place. So I'm like, my plan is to do that sort of not every day, but maybe like two or three days a week. But like, I'm totally like, I could absolutely do that now because <laughs> like the gym's on the way to work, but I'm just, <laughs> I'm just like, no, no, no. When I, when I move, then that's the right time. So then it'll be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nah, best to start afresh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anything else you guys want to say about sleep? I love to sleep. <laughs> Obviously, the bright side here is that you get more awake time and mm. you can fill it with something that's more um, satisfying, I guess. Yeah. But I got to say that, like, waking up after a long sleep, it's kind of like drinking a, a big cup of water. When you're, when, when you're thirsty. thirsty. So let me ask you this. Let's say that like, I don't know, 30% of of uh, the people take that vitamin, oh, the rest man. don't. What do you do? Do you not take it maybe? Oh, no, I absolutely take yeah, it. Absolutely, right? Absolutely what about you, Barry? Hmm, I'm not sure. Those extra hours of, of, of wake up time seem like a dream to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. Okay. <laughs> I'm surprised Barrio didn't say like, oh, well, four hours a day, hey. Well, what about... Two two sleeps a week of fourteen hours, and then I'm done. <laughs> That's what I thought. Barrio was saying. <laughs> in my in oh, my mind, I think Barrio is more like radical, like you know, goes to sleep at like six a.m. and stuff like that. Like that was just the vibe I got, but I don't think it's that bad. <laughs> Definitely, if I had a choice, I would I would rather to be able to stay up late instead of waking up early. Mm. Uh, there's definitely a, a a wonderful feeling of being like up. 
late at night, like at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m., but I'm so much more productive in the mornings, so uh, I tend to wake up very early. Yeah, you're, you're definitely a morning type. Yeah, uh, even though I do enjoy it, I, uh, I just miss the night. I used to go to sleep every night at like 6 a.m. when I was like 20, 21, mm. and, you know, just sleep through the day, and I kind of miss it, but I kind of don't miss it. It's, it's, life's complicated. Yeah, I, I've never been like that crazy, but in um, early university days, like when it was, like I just, I just finished high school of like, got to be there at 8.30 or something like that, and then like started uni, and it was like, and because I was doing all core units, like everyone was doing the same units in the first sort of um, year of university. Yeah. They just had times everywhere. And I was like, oh my God, I don't have to get to uni till like midday. Like what? I literally can just do anything in my morning. And that was like the most free I've ever felt. Like I was just like, man, this is great. And you know what? With freedom comes like responsibility. Of like, <laughs> That's not the line. You know, just maintaining <laughs> your own like sort of, schedule and stuff like that and like i was just so bad at that <laughs> like, i was yeah i was not good yeah. <laughs> so citizen kane a 1941 film directed produced and starring orson welles it's kind of a hard movie to describe in like a brief manner but here it goes uh, the movie starts with the death of charles foster kane who died at a relatively advanced age. His last dying word was Rosebud. Then there's like a five or so minutes uh, long news segment. I think it's called News on the March or something that describes Kane's life from an early age and until his death. Uh, it shows us how Kane came from humble origins. His mother came into this unexpected fortune. She put most of it into sending him away to get an education and to be invested to secure his financial future. Kane then became the owner of a major newspaper network. Uh, he became a very famous, influential person. He, he, he became involved in politics. And we see that in his later years, Kane built himself and his second wife, Susan, like the biggest, fanciest home on earth. Uh, Xanadu, I think it was called. Yep. And basically, he became somewhat of a crazy old person in his later years. And... Like we then see a group of newspaper reporters discussing like the news segment we just watched and debating if it's like a suitable obituary for Kane. Mm -hmm. And they they decide it needs more of a spin and decide to push off reporting it until uh, they figure out what Rosebud, Kane's dying word, means, and because they figure it might be important. And one of the reporters, I think his name is Thompson, I think, he goes on a journey to meet key persons from Kane's life, like. Uh, Mr. Thatcher, who was the banker who became Kane's caregiver. Uh, Mr. Bernstein, who was Kane's general manager. Mr. Leland, who was Kane's best friend and, and partner. And Susan, Susan Alexander, who was Kane's second wife. Um, his first wife, Emily, she passed away in a car accident. Thompson is uh, he's trying to learn about the meaning of Rosebud. And on his journey, which we see as kind of a series of flashbacks... He learns about Kane's life from, from a kid, through his professional and political life, through two marriages, and up to his death. Uh, and through these flashbacks, we see how a young, 
maybe a bit lost and reckless, but I think mostly well-meaning Kane slowly turns into a selfish, eccentric, lonely, disconnected, old, rich man. Mm-hmm. And I won't talk about the ending yet, so let me ask you, this. like, Citizen Kane is considered to be one of the most influential movies in cinema history, and the, the story of its making is is an interesting one, which I'll touch a bit later. So I, I, I was kind of waiting to talk about this movie and to ask you guys, what do you think of the movie? Do you think it stands up after all these years? I think it turned 80, like a couple of mm. months ago. And generally, how did you guys enjoy the movie? Well, Peter always starts. So, Peter, go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, going into it, I didn't actually have much of an image in my head to start off with, like Citizen Kane. Like, I'd heard, I've heard of it, but I don't know. Kane, Kane to me was like, I don't know. Kane is not like a, what do you call, like a sort of a feminine name. It's, it's very sort of hard. Like, I think there's a wrestler called Kane or something like that. It felt like just a little bit manic and citizen. I don't know. The citizen, even though that is, could be like, oh, you know, this guy's a nice citizen. I don't know. Just the two words together kind of gave me like this real dark vibe. Hmm. Um, I thought it might have been, you know what I thought it was? I thought it was like an old murder movie. Like, I thought it was just like, you know, some guys going around murdering women or something like that. And this is the story behind it. That's kind of what I thought it would be like. And um, that's exactly what it was. No. (laughs) (laughs) If you actually look into it, no. (laughs) Um, But at the start, when they're showing um, photos slash images of um, Xanadu, it does give off that vibe. Like, it's like, you know, who's this guy, like, who's in the shadows and stuff like that? Like, it was very, um, I don't know, very dark, very noir almost. And um, yeah. So, you know, I, I was like, oh, maybe it's exactly what I thought it was. But getting into it, it was, um, it's a very hard movie to kind of like put in a category because it's sort of like a biography, but you're living it. You know what I mean? Like, it's like this, it's like one of those classic like uh, movies that you live with the character throughout their life. You know what I mean? And yeah, I don't know. I kind of, um, th- there's definitely movies in the modern day that like follow this template that are like, Check out how got, how this guy hustled when he was young and then look at what he turned into when he was old, whether that be like a nice old man or if he was, became like chagrined and like bitter and everything like that. So it's one of those like life story movies that I'll call it. Yeah. Honestly, like I find it a little bit hard sometimes to disentangle the fact that it's an old movie from just the quality of the movie itself. So, so for instance, like a lot of the time I was watching it, I was just thinking like, I was like, man, isn't it crazy that they were doing this in 41? Like, that's just mad. But the thing is, when people were watching it in 41, like, they didn't have that. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, so this is what a movie is today. So I find it, like, almost impossible to actually think about what it would have been like when it's released. And then I also find it impossible to think about the movie as it is today without trying to think about what it is when it was released. It's It's... <laughs> Like I'm in this middle ground where I just I like the movie for what it is, but then I I also add on the the layer that is sort of you know hmm I wonder what it would have been but like back then so I I honestly thought the direction was just top of the top. Some of the ways they kind of told stories, like they like one of my favorite uses of um, storytelling was when they would they would show a scene of of Kane saying something, and then he would and then they they would kind of like 
do almost like a quick thing where he would say something else, but it's from like a different time. Yeah. He's in the same spot, but it's like he's saying it. And then we go, oh, here's another scenario when he says something similar. And then he says it again. And then they keep doing that. And I just, I honestly didn't think they would have had that before the 60s or the 70s, probably even maybe the 80s. I just thought that's such a modern technique. You know what I mean? Like I just couldn't believe that at the time. It was just, it was intense. And, um, yeah, a lot of even this, the shots, how they filmed things, like um, I guess some of my favorites were when they were in Xanadu and a lot of the things looked like they were normal size, but then as characters would walk past them, they would just become like massive. Gigantic. And it's just like, oh, my <laughs> God, like just that's cool. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of, there's almost some meaning behind it in terms of like, you know, oh, it looks nice, but then when they walk in front of it, like they're so small and it's like, it rem- it just feels like maybe Kane overextended himself. Like things around him are just too big now for him to handle. So, but yeah, no. In general, I I thought it was a great movie. Like I was entertained throughout the whole whole slog of it, the whole two hours. I thought it was entertaining, and um, yeah, I I think maybe the end was a bit of an anticlimax, but not not necessarily in a negative way. Like it was it it was a fine anticlimax. So I got to say, Peter, I, I was, you know, when you start, you, you'll say as well, but I think one of the interesting things about this movie is what do people think this movie is about before watching it? Because <laughs> I had a very different notion of what this is going to be as well. Like, like Citizen Kane sounds like something political where... Yeah, yeah, it has a bit of a political bit to it. Yeah, and so I was thinking, I'm approaching this movie... It's old, but I didn't imagine it black and white. It took me by surprise. And I don't know, like an action movie, Citizen Kane, sounded sounded like energized. I don't know. So I went and like from the first moment, I understood I'm, I'm, I had this movie completely wrong. And, and like you said, it's it was mind-boggling to understand that, that it's a movie from 1941. Like World War II was still happening when this movie got filmed it's yeah. it's crazy to think about it well again and i'm not saying anything that that you didn't say peter because i i completely agree with you but it took me by surprise how well it was i i came with really low expectations like something from a completely different period yeah i expect like i expected something before cinema ex- was cinema yeah i expected something amateur there's like legitimate like video editing as well like which i didn't think existed then yeah, yeah. and um <laughs> You know, from the first moments of the movie, like the the, the beginning was very long. We right? weren't sure if there was going to be vampires or not. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like a like a scary movie at that point, uh, and and I thought that this is going to be the pace, but very quickly it changed and and became something that moves rather fast. You got new facts that are coming in all the time, and I gotta say that. Most of them kind of make sense only after you reach the ending. Mm, yeah. And I got to say that it was very well done. Also, assuming that, that Orson Welles is not only written and directed, it's, he's also playing the, the lead role. That really blew my mind. Like, that guy is talented. How come? Like, the name is familiar, but obviously he's from another time. So we don't hear about him as much today. Like Because I would imagine that he would, he would be like... You know, our uh, Taika Waititi, right? The bottom line is that I was surprised as hell to find out that I 
liked a movie from 1941. Like I mentioned, I wanted to watch this movie for years now, talking about what like we expected from this movie. I saw someone watching on TV a movie with Denzel Washington, and I don't know, it was like an action film, and Denzel Washington was like jumping from building to building or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what movie it was, but for some reason I thought... Oh, so this is Citizen Kane. That looks <laughs> kind of cool. And, and maybe I'll watch it one day. And <laughs> around the time when I got into heavy metal music, there was a song by a band called Manowar that had a narration bit that was done by Orson Welles, uh, like with his deep, dramatic voice. And his name kind of became half legend, half joke among my friends who also listened to that band. Oh, yeah. So, you know, he, he became kind of a legend to us. And then I looked into Orson Welles and saw that he made the movie Citizen Kane, so I figured it out it was a movie from 1941, probably not the one with Denzel Washington. So Super young. I, 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 Diapers. Yeah. <laughs> and since th- that time in my life, I figured one day I'll watch that movie. And as we were sitting down to watch that movie, uh, Barrio watched it with me and another friend joined us. I really thought it was going to be one of those really hard-to-see like what makes this movie great movie, you know, like often when you watch something that is supposed to be game-changing or or like massively influential, it's kind of hard to see what makes it so great, what made, made it so special, because you live in a world that's kind of like after the fact, you don't have the same context, and you need a whole bunch of like reading and background details to really get it. So, you know, I was expecting to see an old movie that may, may be fun, maybe not too interesting, and I figured, whatever it is, I'll read about it later and kind of figure out what makes it great. But you quickly realize that that's not the case with Citizen Kane. Like, when you watch a movie, it doesn't take a lot of time to say that it's really fast-paced, really charismatic, really elegant movie. I have to say, like, it's hard to find something that this movie doesn't do like well. Like, the mm. characters are interesting and fun. The pace is great. The story is really interesting. And the way it's told... You start with a newsflash that has a short version of Kane's life, and then a more detailed story is told through flashbacks and all kinds of small details keep connecting throughout the movie. That's a lot of fun. And it's not a real mystery why this movie is considered to be great. Like, Mm. that's even before you get into all the camera techniques and new lighting techniques they used and all kinds of new stuff they innovated throughout the making of this movie. Even before you get into all of the making of this movie, which I think is a wonderful story and we'll get to it. Even before all that, I think it's a great movie. Like, definitely worth a watch, even despite the fact that it's 80 years old now. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, uh, another word that I kind of always come back to when describing this is grand. It feels very grand because the main character is very grand as well in, in terms of like, you can't summarize him in words, you know, like you, um, or similar to what, what I can't remember the character that said it, but, um, when they were, when they were discussing Rosebud, they said, well, you know what? I'm sure it doesn't matter. Like you can't summarize a man's life in a word. Yeah. So I thought very, very similar with this movie is it's very hard to summarize this movie quickly. Like again, with these life movies that I'll call them, it's, it's like, you don't get the meaning of the movie through like a few tiny bits of symbolic gestures or you don't get one speech that defines the movie or like sums up the movie 
Those whole courtrooms are out of order. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. You don't get you don't get that stuff in this movie. What you get Australian is like Tom a Cruise. sense of <laughs> You don't get <laughs> you don't get those pithy bits in this movie. What you get is like a story told over the two hours and at the end it would take two hours to explain what you just saw. So you may as well just watch the movie yeah. and then then you get it. You know what I mean? Like you watch it, you get it, and then if someone else is like, oh, what's there to get? It's just like, just watch it, you know? <laughs> like, it's There's nothing, like, you can summarize. And you know what? That's the best because he's got to, like, sometimes you see a movie and you go, oh, yeah, there was probably, like, one kind of good thread of story there, which could be told in, like, a short story or a comic or even a comic strip, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, you know, they wanted to have all the explosions and the soundtrack and the actors and the and the trailer and stuff like that. So, you know, they just did that. But this one is kind of like, they've already got like the, the bare bones is the movie. Like it's, it's, you can't cut it down really. You needed like, not necessarily like every scene is like perfect, but it's like you just needed to experience the whole thing. You need to go through to like get the meaning, you know, you yeah. can't, can't extract the meaning from any like one particular scene. Totally agree. That sentence that you mentioned, the uh, you can't describe like a man's life with one word. The, the the reporters said just as they're like about to give up on trying to figure out what rosebud means. That's mm. like one of the last sentences in the movie. And in the end, we figure out what rosebud means, and the reporters don't. And rosebud is the name or the brand of Kane's sleigh as a kid in his parents' home. Uh, the sleigh is mentioned and shown very early in the movie. Uh, first, it is mentioned as what Kane used to push away Thatcher, the banker, when they first met. Like, he didn't want to go with him and leave his childhood home. Well, uh, childhood as a whole behind. And the fact that he mentioned it before he died shows us he never really got over that moment. His, he never got, really got over his mom's decision to send him away. Mm -hmm. And on the evening where he first met Susan, uh, his second wife, he said he was on his way to a warehouse which stored his mother's possessions. Like, he wanted to go and see his mother's possessions. He was his lost past was always somewhere down there bothering him, even even in his best moments, probably. And yeah, I, I guess it, it, it always weighed heavily on him and what kind of drove him to slowly kind of maybe forget his motivations and principles and become literally kind of a monster in the end. Um, what, how'd you guys like the, the ending as a whole? Well, it was anticlimactic, but not in, in the bad way. It was, it, I think it was a little bit because no character knew the ending. It was just the, yeah. um, it was just a viewer, which like got to give credit. Like that was also another film technique, like separating kind of what the audience knew to what the, to what they're like the characters knew obviously that yeah i felt a, like we were in on the secret yeah it felt like, I obviously it. that's like a known technique but like being in on the secret and not having the payoff of like you know the characters finding out like 10 10 minutes later but like that's it like there's you as like a viewer have like a different experience to the characters you know what i mean like yeah that's, that's quite new and um now in terms of the the ending i actually don't know if this is like what I would like pin my hat on, like maybe the weak bit of the the movie or if it's totally fine. But to me, like I thought it was underdefined potentially, like what, what Rosebud did mean, like, because they put a lot of emphasis in it and like everyone wanted to know, like particularly like the magazine wanted to know and like all of his friends, like as you got closer to him, like they seemed 
less and less like concerned about it. Like all of his best friends and stuff like that. Like they're like, oh yeah, yeah, Rosebud. You know what I mean? Like it's nothing. And, yeah, forget about it. Yeah, but yeah. like the 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 newspaper like really cared, um, which I thought you know was kind of interesting. And it wasn't like totally clear why. You know, I guess they wanted the story, but I mean, like, I th- I thought it would have been like a little bit more of like a common like a thing. Like, why would like the public want to know and stuff like that? But then when it got to the end, like, I tried to put together like what it meant. Because I, I knew I could just Google it and it would just be like, oh, yeah, so this is what Rosebud meant. Like, what does it mean that it's on? Like, a childhood possession obviously comes with, like, baggage. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. people never really let go of their childhood selves. Like, some people say, like, you you basically, when you're a child, you're kind of in this vulnerable state. And, like, you know, that, that leaves, like, an impression. Like, there leaves a footprint, like, on your mind about what it was when you were in that state, Right. And a lot of people think, well, you, but you grow out of it. I personally kind of think you always carry it and you just click into it in certain situations, you know, like hmm. when your boss yells at you or something like that, you go back into that kind of shell and it, you re, you feel like what it was to be like a child again, you know, and you have that same sort of coping mechanisms and stuff. I feel like the fact that he had the rosebud was just, I feel like it was just him just hearkening back to like what it felt like when, you know, he had no control because most of his life, he, he can basically hire and fire anyone he wants. Like it, it's yeah. like at the end of the day, like he, he was building Xanadu, which was like the ultimate, like basically building his own sort of small country. Right. And then the sled was just like him hearkening back to like what it was before he had all that. And like, was that potentially better? Cause in this movie, like it's kind of hard to see exactly what Kane wants most of the time. Like, he wants more influence more so than money, you know, and it's epitomized by the scene where he's like, you know, um, if this newspaper loses a million dollars a year, well, you know, I have to shut it down in 64 years. Yeah. <laughs> so like <laughs> it, it's clearly not about the money, but like he wants, he still wants eyeballs to see what he's doing. And at the end of the day, like, I, I just don't think that was like the optimum route because like, I think there was, uh, we got to like probably the lowest stage of when he was like really old and his wife was saying like, you know, we should go to New York. Like, why don't we go to New York? And he's like, oh, I don't want to go to New York. It's just too much effort. And it felt like he just gave up on life at that point. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he looked old. Like we, I guess we haven't talked about the makeup effects and stuff like that, which were like, I guess, I think it was all makeup, but yeah. you know, which were kind of amazing. But yeah, like, I guess you get to this state where it's just like, all the money and stuff like that couldn't help him. It's not like he was like in one of those Bob Dylan songs. It's like, you know, Masters of War or whatever. He's like, you know, can all that money buy back your soul? It wasn't like he did something terrible, but it's just like, I guess it's greed. You know what I mean? Like, I think eventually it'll catch up to you. So, but yeah, I still don't have like a full picture of what the sled meant. All I know for certain is like, it's going back to a time when he didn't have the resources yet he had the a better, like a positive state of mind. That's interesting. You know, I, I never, I didn't think about it that way. Like I always looked at mm. Rosebud as something said with longing, maybe, but mm. you're saying it's kind of more like, um, like he's facing death. So he's feeling that he lost control again. Yeah. I think, I think potentially like, like he's trying to reflect on who he is as, as a person, you know, like, behind all the suits and the and the money and the Xanadu and everything like that. Like, 
you know, when you're, when you're about to die, it's just like, you know, what kind of person are you? Cause think about it. What, what is the feeling of like when you're going to die? Like without having that feeling myself, prestige doesn't matter because prestige is only good for you bound to use it in the future. Resources don't matter, right? All that matters in that moment is really like how you feel about like who you are as a person. You know what I mean? Like, are you doing a good job? Like, are you helping other people out? And I feel like that was just the moment where it's like, mm, you know, things were probably better when I was a child and like potentially a little bit because he was moved away from his dad, left his childhood behind, but potentially just like maybe things went off the rails a little bit. So, and it's hard to pinpoint a time when it happened, but I think just like slowly complications, I think the marriage was probably a big thing, but yeah, I think this happens with a lot of rich people. Like I know at work, I, I, I deal with people who just are, are so well resourced. You would, you would think like they would have no problems, but I don't know who said this, but more money, more problems, yeah. you know? Childhood <laughs> traumas do have a lot of weight, like in our behavior as, as adults. In a way, Citizen Kane kind of like draws this tragedy. You know, Kane's mother thought she was doing the best for him, right? She yeah. He has a lot of money. She's sending him away from his uh, uh, abusive father. father. Yes, she's doing the best for him, but... At least, and again, that's my take on it. She puts him in a in a where he feels that he wasn't loved enough by his mother in order for him to keep him. Mm. And I think that, that they actually say it in the movie. Everything that he does, he he tries to win the people's love. Yeah, that's exactly right. So he's trying to prove to himself that he is lovable, and and it's never enough. It's like he's looking for love like an eight-year-old kid, you know? He just wants the attention. He doesn't know what real love means. He doesn't know how to pay back love, you know? Yeah. He, he, he's the same eight-year-old kid, except now he has all the money in the world. Well, they don't say it in the movie, but I like to think that the slay is something that his mother got him. Mm. You know, the last thing that his mother got him, like a, a, a token of her love. Yeah. Like for him, the, the slay name is Rosebud. And remembering it... It's kind of like telling to himself, even though he doesn't believe it, your mother did love you. You are worthy enough. You're, you are worthy. You're not, you're not as bad as you think you are. Yep, that's a better take. I like your take. That's good. Yeah, the way, uh, the way I saw it is like, just before he died, he remembered like the last moment he was truly happy. Because like, since the moment he was given away to Thatcher, the banker, we see that he's always kind of trying to rebel against Thatcher, always trying to become popular, always trying to become like what he thinks of as a successful person. Mm. And like in the ending, just before he dies, he, he remembers the last moment he was truly happy. And that kind of makes the whole story kind of tragic because he was a monster. He was kind of a scary character. He was dark, not a positive character, but... He was kind of shown in a sympathetic life mostly throughout the movie. So you do feel for him. And that makes his whole life like a, a series of tragedies, you know. Mm. Uh, that's kind of sad, I thought. Yeah, because like think about like in the alternate history of like say he had one wife. It just went perfect, right? It was just like radiating happiness and um, and joy and which, which wasn't the case with his first wife and, and slowly became not the case or slow, mediumly, I guess it wasn't that slow, but um, became the case with his second wife. But if everything was just absolutely hooly-dooly, you know, like just <laughs> perfect, I guess he wouldn't have felt so bad about losing the election, you know, like it was, 
I can just imagine him be able to overcome all these problems like Xanadu and the election and some of his friendships and stuff like that. He could just overcome that if he had that backbone of having like a supportive relationship. But I don't think on his deathbed, he certainly wasn't going like, damn, wish I got more votes, you know? Yeah. What what I'm thinking is this. Even if like the reporters did find the sleigh that says Rosebud, I think they, they still wouldn't have been able to understand what we understand. Even though, like all the flashbacks we see, Thompson, the, the reporter guy, also sees them. But I don't know if like finding the sleigh would have changed the ending for them. Yeah, or otherwise, maybe scientists would have studied it for about <laughs> three months and just concluded, we got no fucking clue. <laughs> <laughs> but kind of like Barrio said, there's a point in the, in the movie where Jed Leland, who was Kane's friend and partner, he said at some point that everything Kane did was because he wanted to be loved, and yet Kane had no love to give back. Mm. He said something about how Kane needed the love of his friends, then he wanted more, so he became the head of the newspaper. And we, we were told that he, he had an opinion about every matter, and his opinions were conflicting, and it, it's as if he was trying to appeal to everyone at once. And in the end, that wasn't enough, so he got into politics, trying to win the love of the entire country. And Kane didn't get his mother's love as he grew up, and he was never able to fill that emptiness in his life. And Jed also said that Kane loves to compel people to love him and they have to love him on his own terms and play by his rules and you know Kane like we said he's a child inside like uh, it's as if he stopped growing mentally when he was eight Hmm. and what's interesting about that is that Orson Welles lost his mother when he was eight so oh wow yeah and and I think I read about it that that played a lot into Kane's character into Welles acting he was exploring some of the issues of his own life with that character. And it is said that like a lot of Kane's characteristics are just Orson Welles' personality traits. Orson Welles, as far as I've read, was also kind of controlling and demanding of love. Mm-hmm. You know, I-, I guess that's what made Kane's character feel believable and real. And, and in a way, even, even somewhat endearing, mm. kind of another layer to that movie. Oh, yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's actually fits together perfectly. Something interesting to mention, I'm sure you've noticed that like throughout the movie you never see the faces of the reporters who try to figure out the meaning of Rosebud. Oh yeah, I love that. Yeah, like their faces are always in the shadows or you always see them from from behind and they remain anonymous and distant throughout the story. And something interesting that I think was done on purpose and I didn't notice it the first time I watched the movie, it's one of the earlier scenes when Kane is writing down his Uh, declaration of principles as a newspaper publisher like he realized how much power he has in his hands with that like new new position and he writes down uh the declaration of principles and i think at that moment like everything there is very idyllic yeah at that moment as he signs that declaration of principles there's a few seconds there that his face is is entirely in the shadows like you can't see it Mm. but you can see bernstein and leland standing around him and you can see everything else in the room. So I, I'm not exactly sure what this symbolizes, but th- at that moment, he's like those reporters. He's actually, maybe that's the closest he was to, a, to being an actual reporter, to actually seeking truth. Yeah, it's like, um, it's not your ideas. It's almost like that ideas are like flowing through you, you know? Like it's, um, mm. there's like you and then there's like the ideas. So you're somehow like separate from it. Yeah. 
We will learn about Cain's life through flashbacks, which means that all of the bits of his life that we see are told from the perspectives of one of the other characters. I think that like Bernstein, Bernstein was his general manager. Uh, I think his stories about Cain paint Cain in the most positive light, while I think Susan's point of view is the most negative. Susan is his second wife. It's a very interesting storytelling method. Like the reporter, you, you kind of go through the stories, consider each point of view, you know, and, and decide on your own what really happened. What, what, what is the truth? Where, where are the grains of truth within that bunch of information, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, I didn't notice it. I thought it was kind of cool. But I read that the reporter, Thompson, who's like interviewing all of the people, he appears in all those flashbacks. Like he's supposed to be always positioned somewhere off center, like a witness and not exactly a participant mm-hmm. in the event that is shown. And he's supposed to be always like either in the shadow or facing away. So that's kind of cool. Kind of a neat little detail. Oh, wow. I wonder if it's true. Yeah. Like a, a black and white game of Where's Waldo. <laughs> what did you guys think about the um, how they did the changes in sort of um, throughout Kane's years, like um, when he was young and obviously not when he's a child, but when he was kind of like in his 20s and 30s and stuff up until when he was old. Like, how did they do that? I heard it took him like four hours to put on the old guy makeup. Yeah. I just was amazed. <laughs> like, it, the, the time at the very sort of end when he looks like old, it looks like more than just makeup because he looked like he had like a different figure. Like, they just... They might have like padded the um, sort of shoulders a little bit to make him look a little bit more square. Like, yeah, it was really good. Yeah. Like, it was it was one of the most well done exposés of like what you can do with that because it was such a. I've seen like in movies where they just like go from when you're twenty to like when you have a child and you're like forty or something. But like this was major. This was sort of like a sixty year change, and it was um, and they pulled it off. Yeah, it, it was definitely one of the best. I've seen like it could like, I can totally imagine that all they did was just do like a lot of makeup like adding mass like potentially making like a neck sort of thicker or something like that and you know doing stuff with the hair like I guess that's probably one thing which you could kind of tell like the boldness that they've obviously put some sort of cap and done some work with that but besides that like it was they went super like fundamental with it you know like just how how do you turn this person into this person? You know, it was because a lot of the a lot of the time you got to be like, oh, I see what they're going for. You know, they're kind of trying out like the the old person look. Whereas this, you didn't have to like. There was no like faith that was required. It was like yeah, you didn't have to suspend your disbelief. It was, it just looked older. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. You didn't have to suspend your disbelief. It was like you were totally in it. You know. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it was great. I loved it. Uh, like, he wasn't the only character that was aged. I think Bernstein, Leland, yep. and, and Susan were also aged. And yep. I thought it looked great. I really thought it looked real. I, I kept thinking, this can't be the same actor, but he looks he looks exactly like the same person. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they really did a good job with that. I thought it was great. Yeah, I, I agree. You know what that makes me think about the Harry Potter movies? Where they appear <laughs> old at the end. Yeah, see, that was totally you had to suspend your disbelief for that. They oh, just look like children yeah. trying to get into a club. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think of that. It's like well, the, the the Harry Potter movies had the biggest budget. I know. Maybe. And what was the gap? It was like when they were recording it, they would have been, what, like 18? Yeah. And like they needed to pose as like 40. 40. So it was like a 20, 25 <laughs> 
year age gap <laughs> and i absolutely like citizen kane orson wells was like 25 and they aged him to be 70 something yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay here's, here's something that's off the cuff right what do you reckon it would have been better if they had not done the flashbacks and instead tried to show like just go through it without the old flashback thing or do you reckon it would have stuffed up the movie because obviously like they could have spent more time cultivating like the rosebud thing if it was cuz there was no real story that was told from Kane's perspective no not at all it was all told from outsiders which is yeah. why rosebud doesn't come up that often but do you reckon it would have been better if they just did it tr like the traditional way like no flashbacks and just got to it at the end or do you reckon there's something about the flash like do you think the flashbacks themselves is like do you think it adds to it I'm sure, I'm sure like they could have found a way to tell the story without the flashbacks, but I think that I think it totally adds to it. I think it gives everything a lot of meaning. I think you get to see like the point of views of every every different character and you never really get to see from like Kane's point of view, but you still get to kind of empathize with Kane in a round and about kind of way. I, I think it was brilliant, but now i'm I'm kind of wondering how they how they could have pulled it off with. Without the flashbacks, that's an interesting question. Without the flashbacks, it would have been harder to do it from a character's perspective because you haven't got them in that candid sort of interview um, setting. I think the reason why it needed to be flashbacks, this is this is the reason why I think the flashbacks work particularly well, is because what's the movie about? Really, it's about essentially what Barrio just went over. Like, it's someone looking back on their life, right? Yeah. And you can really only do that when you're at the end of your life. So what I think we're seeing is what Kane saw. I think we're trying, we're experiencing what he would have said or what, what he would have experienced just before he said Rosebud. So basically, we're meant to watch the movie and at the end say Rosebud. <laughs> like, not actually say that, but like, I think that's the meaning we're meant to draw out of it. Like, what were the what were the things that made this great, and what were the things that like just didn't matter? And I think that's the the conclusion he came to. Not necessarily one we need to come to, but we it's almost like he's watched the movie. Kane's watched the movie called Citizen Kane, and at the end he said Rosebud. As as far as I've known, like Citizen Kane as a movie is said to have changed like movie making. Have you yeah. have you guys read a bit about that? Um not a lot to be honest, but I mean I believe it because yeah. like flashback to the first episode of this podcast, right? When we watched um <laughs> forget the producers. producers. Um, by Mel Brooks. You remember how sort of gimmicky and almost like that it was it was very broad, like in terms of it was very lowest common denominator humor. Like everyone would have got the jokes. It was like Yeah. You know, it was a little bit over the top, like exaggerated a little bit, you know, like the play scene absolutely like, oh my God, this guy's Nazi, you know, like this that kind of stuff. That is absolutely for me going backwards. Like that. I mean, it's a different genre. Don't get me wrong, but you know, if this, if both of these movies came out in say, let's let's meet in the middle and go, nineteen fifty five or something, I I think honestly, Citizen Kane would have been this the a, a great movie to watch that weekend, and and the other one, sure, it's a it's not a bad movie. The producers, but like it's in a it's in a different league, you know. It's um, oh yeah, it's like Suicide Squad and Interstellar. You know? <laughs> like it's one is. One passes the time, and the other is like a is adding to the 
adding to pop culture, essentially. Yeah. I didn't know you like Suicide Squad that much. <laughs> <laughs> Or don't like the producers as much. <laughs> But so as far as I know, the, the movie Citizen Kane displays a lot of like visual and storytelling techniques that are used today even. For example, like all kinds of stuff they did were the use of lighting, the, the forced perspective, the use of paintings for backgrounds, a technique called deep focus where... Everything in the scene is focused, like it's some sort of technique that doesn't lead your eyes to look at certain things because everything is in focus. And telling the story starting with the ending was a special thing they, mm. they kind of did. And the main parts of the story is told through flashbacks and the makeup to age the actors and all kinds of stuff. And these are all techniques that like weren't necessarily invented for this movie, but it is said that like Citizen Kane was the first movie to use all of them prominently and to a greater effect. And this movie like really popularized a lot of these techniques. And like mostly when I see movies that are influential in that kind of way, I can't really put my finger on what's so influential about them, but with this one, most of those are really clear and easy to spot. like, The lighting on the reporters is one, one example. But like another example that I really liked, there's a scene that takes place in 1929 during the, the Great Depression in which Kane and I think it was Thatcher, maybe it was Bernstein, are in an office and Kane is like walking around the room and Thatcher is signing a document that presumably sells away a bunch of Kane's newspaper empire due to the Depression. And in that scene, we see Kane kind of turning around, turning to, to look out of the window, which seems to be right next to him. But that's actually forced perspective. Like mm. Kane is then walking towards the window, which is much further and much bigger than, mm. than you expect. And as Kane is walking towards the window, he seems to become smaller and smaller as his empire is being signed away. And another example that is easy to spot, at some point, Leland, Kane's friend, he writes a bad review of Susan's performance, which Kane doesn't exactly handle well. <laughs> and then Leland and, and Kane, and they have like a short conversation in which like we know Kane is going to do something unpredictable. We know he's angry. And throughout uh, the, that scene, they're basically on the same level on the screen, but Leland is much further in the background and it seems... Like, he's so much smaller than Kane. And I remember, like, looking at that shot, and, and this unavoidably gave me the impression that Kane holds all the power. It just gave the scene a very ominous and dangerous feel. And usually, I don't tend to really spot those things. I don't really tend to, to notice the lighting and the camera angles and stuff like that. But with Citizen Kane, it was so upfront. Like, you could easily spot... A bunch of those examples like, even if you don't really look for those yeah it was almost like a collection of them it was it was almost that many i think the last time or the time before this then i that i watched something and i was like whoa i felt like i'd been watching like ye olde tv before <laughs> this was when i was really young um back when you used to buy like television shows from like the the shops <laughs> right i would have been maybe <laughs> maybe like 2010 So I would have been about 13 and uh, I was watching How I Met Your Mother season one. Like, I don't know how I got onto it. I think I watched one show, one episode at a, a friend's house when it was on and I was like, wow, this is awesome. So let's, let's get um, season one. I still remember this. I, I went down to the shops and um, had a bit of pocket money and I just I grabbed season one and I brought it to the counter. I got it, went home. 
I watched all 24 episodes or whatever it was. I was like, oh man, that's great. So I just went through and I watched it again. So I watched all season one twice. And like, it was just so crazy because like, so think about season one, How I Met Your Mother was in 2005 and Friends ended 2004. And Friends was very much like, even though it ended in the 2000s, it was very much like a 90s show. It was um, the classic little bit of a guitar riff to start off each yeah. scene <laughs> and everyone gets in, you close the door and then everyone starts talking. You have to have like some sort of like sound to start off with like ding, ding. All right, guys. You know, like it's one of those, it's yeah, very it's 90s, exactly right. you know, and like, <laughs> Then when I went into how, you met, how I Met Your Mother, it was like just the the way they told the story, like that you'd get into a conversation, right? Like so, someone someone would be like, "Oh, hey Barney," and it's just like, "Wait, wait, wait, I can't talk to you right now." And he's like talking on the phone, and then they do a cut scene, and then they see the other person on the other line, and it's like someone in China. It's all sharper. Like, yeah, it's very sharp. Like that's what it was. Like it, it required like the viewer to be like keeping like the attention and like you almost had to be on the defensive, like as a viewer, like looking out for when jokes could appear, you know what I mean? Cause like you don't know when they, where they're going to come from. Yeah. Whereas when I was watching friends, like the jokes were so not predictable cause they were, they were still funny, but it was like they, they had a pattern, you know what I mean? Like the pat, the joke was someone would say something and then the other person would make fun of it. And there was like a greater, it was like that they understood the rules and then there were just like, making their own rules a little bit. And I felt like the same thing with this movie. Like it was, they understood the rules well enough that they could start doing the things with them, you know? And like that required not just great acting because the acting was pretty good. Bearing in mind, it was different then. It was well, it was like a, it was a, people expected different acting then, but the actual shots had to be good. It had to be well filmed and then it had to be edited as well, which I was, just unaware of that. I thought it was just like just raw footage that went in in the movie, apparently not. And then, you know, they still had to have like they, that awareness to like use it at the right time. And I just got the exact same feeling as, as when I'd watch How I Met Your Mother, like that first time, hmm. you know, it, um, it was just, just like, just a really great use of cinema. You know, like you feel like some people want to make a movie and tell a great story and then some people go like above that and just go, oh, I know how I can change cinema. You know, I, I know how I can hmm. like change storytelling. And um, yeah, that's why it kind of amazes me that it was like early 40s because like I, I would have expected this to be groundbreaking if it came out in the 70s. Yeah. Um, what, what day, what, uh, not day, what, what year did LA Confidential come out? Because I remember that was a similar feeling for me. Have you guys seen that movie? I don't think so. Oh my God, that's 1997. I thought that was earlier. Damn, because I, I remember seeing LA Confidential. And I mean, to its credit, it does a lot of good film techniques. It's like, it's kind of like one of those ones that English teachers use for, like, oh, look at how they don't tell you everything, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> those ones. But I remember being like, oh, wow, they did that in movies before the 2000s. Like, Although bearing in mind, I did think LA Confidential <laughs> was like 20 years before this. But what I was going to say is that, you know, if this, if um, Citizen Kane came out in say 1975, I would have, I would have said it's amazing that they, it was groundbreaking. It's amazing this happened then. So then the fact that it came out in 1941 
it one it enhances that like it makes me even more impressed but then it also confuses me as like what what happened between like the 40s and the 70s like it felt like almost nothing happened you know like um, but if, but then again, the people in the seventies, eighties, nineties were were looking back at Citizen Kane and learning from it. So it's not like people didn't learn things from the forties, but they learned things from the forties and the seventies, not not the fifties. So yeah, let me give you a, a few extra details about like the making of the movie that I thought. Oh, cool! Like like, like I said, I thought this movie was amazing after I watched it. Yeah. I thought the storytelling, the like everything, was really interesting, really well done, but. Like, these extra details, I thought, really blew my mind. Like, uh, in the late 30s, Orson Welles was making a name for himself by, like, his somewhat infamous read of War of the Worlds on the radio. Have you heard about that? Uh, yeah, yeah. I've, it's kind I of a famous that. story. He read this, like, a science fiction book about an invasion of aliens or something. I don't really know. But, like, he read it on the, on the radio, and people thought he was an honest newscast and not a reading of a fictional story. And... He was also known for his work with the Mercury Theater, an independent theater company, which was led by Wallace and John Houseman, which I think was also also became kind of a famous director. With Mercury uh, Theater, they had a few indie productions at Broadway. And based on that, based on his work on the radio and theater, Wells got a movie deal with RKO Productions, RKO Pictures. And the interesting thing about it was the fact that despite the fact that it was Wells' first movie, he got complete freedom to do whatever he wanted with it. And as far as I've read, he just sort of winged it as they went. And imagine directing, producing, writing, and acting in your first ever movie at 25 years old and ending up with one of the most influential movies in cinema mm. in 1941. Yeah, we haven't even talked about the fact that it's his first fucking movie. First, like, yeah. Like, like, what? That's insane. Not only was it his first movie, the freedom to do what he wanted allowed him to hire the actors from the Mercury Theater, which means that this was the first role in a movie for almost all of the actors. Like... Some of the actors had experience in indie theater or on the radio, but none in terms of cinema. This is not only his first movie, it was everyone's first movie. Another interesting point, other than the fact that it was Orson Welles' first everything in terms of movies and the actors were all new, another interesting point is the fact that the cinematographer on this movie, Greg Toland, he was at the time considered to be the best in the business. And he decided he wanted to work with a rookie director, an unexperienced director, because he wanted someone that would be willing to experiment with new techniques and ideas, which contributed to the long-lasting legacy of the movie. Like, a lot of the things they did on this movie that are influential today were just because they were willing to experiment. Like, they, the, the experienced Greg Toland, the, the experienced cinematographer, and the unexperienced director, they just tried new things they just kept experimenting they that like nothing stopped them from playing with it and then there's the problematic story of citizen kane which criticized a real person at the time like there was a rich newspaper publisher and politician or something mm. i don't remember his name but wells was afraid that the studio would hear about the the the, the story of the movie so he basically, they made the movie almost completely in secrecy. Like they often filmed on Saturday mornings 
to make sure that executives weren't around. <laughs> and they started shooting the movie like months before it was approved by, by the studio. Like Wells, he wanted to get going before anyone could stop him. He wanted to make mm. as much of the movie as he could before anyone would get a chance to stop him. So they would pretend to like test camera angles and test different lighting conditions <laughs> and they were actually filming scenes to be used in the movie the first thing they filmed was the news on the march bit that opened the movie and like they already had a fair chunk of the movie down when the movie was approved which was a lucky thing because he got like a budget for for like his tests and he went over budget with that even before they were approved for the movie so mm-hmm. they they made the movie in complete freedom, without the knowledge of anyone, without any experience at all other than the cinematographer that came on board this project only to experiment with everything. And in the end, the movie's budget was around $850,000, which is equal to about $16 million of today's currency. And the movie was well-received when it was released. Like, it got mostly positive reviews. It was considered groundbreaking even at the time. And obviously, it is still talked about today. I learned yesterday that there are two movies made about the making of Citizen Kane. Uh, one is called RKO 281, which is the name of the project before it got the name Citizen Kane. That movie came out in 1999, and Mank, short for Mankiewicz, uh, the, the, the other guy who co-wrote the movie with mm. uh, Wells, that, that came out last year in 2020, and they're supposed to be really good films, so... Uh, everything about this movie, like everything about how they made it and what the the final product ended up being, I, I I just think it's interesting. Everything about this story is is funny or weird or just interesting. Yeah, that's kind of baffling, actually. The fact that like he basically just like went off and it's like, oh, might make a cheeky movie. Hopefully, yeah. it gets. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it gets approved and then slowly he gets into that bit where he really wants the movie to be made and shit, hopefully they don't cancel me. That's <laughs> yeah, crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. But you know what's funny now? That we we all know what Citizen Kane is, but we don't ev- we can't even recall who that politician was. <laughs> That's interesting, yeah. <laughs> In the end, I really just loved Citizen Kane. I knew it was going to be worth a watch. Like, it's not considered to be one of the greatest movies of all time for no reason, but I expected to kind of have to find a way to love it. But I didn't. It's it's really just a really fun, interesting movie uh, with a really interesting story behind it. And for a couple of days after I watched it, I kept thinking about it. I was literally distracted at work because I was thinking about the different characters' <laughs> relationship with Kane. And I, I always love a movie that sticks with me for a while. I also think that out of the few older movies we've watched, this was the most approachable and relatable one because you didn't have to do anything to really get into this movie. You mm. just had to. I, I really think anyone can enjoy this movie. You know, it's not like you have to be like a, a, a movie buff. You don't have to be like a cinemaphile to really enjoy this. I think it's just a fun movie. You know, it's a, it's got so many layers to it. Like it's yeah. funny and interesting and it's a bit scary and ominous and there's all kinds of things going on throughout the movie. You know, I'm not going to say that it's the best movie ever made. Maybe the most influential, maybe the most, the the movie that inspired the most directors or whatever. I don't know, but it's just a great movie. Oh, I'll join in on that. Even the fact that it's it's been done that early and and when we talk about it that much positively, it's uh, proven work that it's a masterpiece that 
that's worth experiencing. I gotta say that comparing to other films that we watched, I haven't noticed that many references to it in pop culture other than obviously Rosebud. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, something something I like about this movie is like, yeah, as as um, Inon said, you don't have to find a way to love it. You know, like it's definitely as is, good to go. What I did expect, I, I find this with a lot of mo- modern movies that they put on a bit of a show. So like they show you some pretty brilliant cinematography and, you know, there's some well-acted lines and stuff. But in terms of the actual like plot of the movie, sort of the meaning and stuff like that, it's a very popular thing for the director to be like, you know, I don't have to tell them what I meant. Like, let's just build it and they will come and essentially, you know, like we just got to make this fantastic thing and the viewer will, will fill in the blanks a little bit like that. And don't get me wrong, that sometimes works, but this one doesn't like make you fill in the blanks at all. You know what I mean? Like it's, I guess you, you have that imagination that you can add to it, but it's like, I feel like some movies recently just leave them half finished almost. And then they try to sell it off as like, oh, you know, everyone else has their own interpretation. Whereas I just feel like it's just like, yeah, but a few scenes could have explained a few things. Well, I feel like this one does that well. And in addition, obviously all the things were said, like um, it's innovative for its time, like in terms of the way they shot it, edited it, acted it, filmed it, the makeup of the characters, um, both cosmetically and plot wise. It's just, um, it's all around a good time. You know, it's just fantastic. And I will say just for the record that, um, I know we talk about the, um, library of Congress (laughs) a lot more than most podcasts, I would hasten to say. (laughs) And, um, this one isn't an ordinary inductee this one is actually an inductee in the 1989 inaugural group of the first 25 films um for preservation in the united states nationally national film registry for being culturally historically or aesthetically significant so this is one of the first ones they put in so which i totally agree like if this turned out to be like a half decent film with with like a decent plot but, you know, made in the 1940s, I still would have said like, hmm, potentially this could be something for the Quag, you know, like it's yeah. um, very significant, extremely significant. You know, we're getting into the point where we don't even have that good records in the 1940s, you know, like, you know, it's, it's one of those patchy years or not years, um, decades in history where like things are starting to become modern. And the fact that like a movie that, is just fantastically filmed and produced came out in the in the basically the first or second year of the 40s is it's just mind blowing and the fact that like it's still entertaining today is is amazing so as we do at the end of each step of our quest we're going to take a vote that will decide whether or not citizen kane has a place in the culture quest essentials guide aka the quag we'll vote with a gentlemanly tip of the hat for yay or an ominous stroke of the mustache for nay and the vote must be unanimous in order for it to pass. I'll just remind you that Orson Welles is already, in a way, a Quag member. He had a line or two in the Muppet movie, which we put in the Quag somewhere around 20 episodes ago. So, with that in mind, and all the things Peter said about the Library of Congress, (laughs) let's vote. (laughs) So, for Citizen Kane, I will tip my hat.
Barrio? Tipping. I, I, it's one of those really easy tips for me. Like I, I, I knew I was going to tip my hat for this as I finished watching the movie. So this is in, and my plan to sneak something into the quag just before the second anniversary episode worked flawlessly, I think. <laughs> Fantastic. There'll be no war. You can take my word for it. <laughs> cool. So, not sure if you guys remember, but uh, last time I gave you two choices. Um, they were both 80s albums. Yeah. Talking Heads it was and uh, Paul Simon. Talking Heads Paul Simon, yeah. So, we ended up going for Paul Simon with sort of mixed reviews, but um, overall, I think we... We had a good time. Uh, overall positive. I think it was the the most negative about that album, and I like this album all in all. Mm. Like, uh, I still I listened to it a while, like uh, a couple of times this week. I really do like this album. So this time I thought I'd continue the trend and go for two '90s albums. So I I, I came across these in different in different ways. The first one, which is probably the more popular, um, I would say, is Pearl Jam's Ten. I'm not sure if how how familiar you guys are with it, but essentially Pearl Jam. I'm not a, a massive mega fan, mostly because I haven't listened to a lot of the stuff. But sort of in that early '90s, um, early grunge alternative um, movement um, in Seattle, alongside sort of Nirvana. Now, Ten. I've been listening a lot to a podcast called The Great Albums Podcast, and I find their their sort of reviews or not reviews. Um, their discussions go a lot into these sort of the early 90s grunge area and Pearl Jam 10 just comes up a lot and they always say things like they'll be talking about a different album and they go yeah this is sort of like their Pearl Jam 10 and like because I don't know that album that well I don't know what that means but I think it means just the undeniable favorite and I, I could have that totally wrong it could be something else but I'm thinking it. I'm thinking that's kind of what it means, like well-rounded, kind of put all the hits on the same album, kind of thing. So, I'm confident I will like that album, and I've also heard a couple of songs. I I know the song. I think it's called Alive. Um, I think I learned the guitar riff like when I was first starting mm. guitar. I, I so I know sort of fi- the feel of it, and I I think it will be a great album. The second one is. I was on, um, as as the viewers will probably know by now, I'm I'm a pretty big Radiohead fan now that I've I've listened to them. I've, I I discovered them through the podcast, and yeah, I've just been going through the albums. And uh, I saw on the Radiohead subreddit r slash Radiohead there was a there was a poll or a um, or uh, it was a request for what other albums Radiohead listeners liked. So basically, mm. everyone on this sub what. What what are you guys listening to? Like, what do you recommend? And this came up so often, and I had never heard of it. I hadn't heard of the album um, name, and I hadn't heard of the the people slash person who made it. Yet it came up in I reckon on the first scroll through, maybe every third comment had this listed. Huh. And um, the album is called Homogenic by a group um, or an artist. I believe it might be just a single artist called Bjork and um so so it was released in um 1997 in the UK and the United States produced by Bjork a few other people (laughs) it's it it, okay so this is really out of my comfort zone I think but 
it's sort of combining electronic beats and string instruments with songs in tribute to her native country, Iceland. So I guess it's an Icelandic artist with, again, sort of maybe a little bit of electronic and string stuff. So I'm thinking Kid A direction here, but a few years prior to Kid A. Yeah, the, it, honestly, just um, it is totally foreign to me in both um, geography and, and um, style. But uh, yeah, it's 43 minutes, so it's kind of standard LP um, size. So yeah, honestly, you, the choice here is between like a a family favorite in um, Pearl Jam 10 or just a bit of something in the unknown. Have you guys, I think you guys might be familiar, or at least Anon's familiar with Pearl Jam's 10, but what about on Homogenic? Barry, do you, anything, do you know anything about Bjork? Have you ever listened to her? A bit, a bit. I gotta say it's not Kid A, but not it Kid is a. interesting. <laughs> yeah, I never listened to the album that you're referring. So that, that one might be an interesting way to go. She's supposed to be like very artsy in a very positive way. Like she's supposed Ooh. to be very interesting, something that, you know, takes a while to really get into. She's supposed to be very, very talented. I, mm. I'd love to get into that album. And 10, 10 is another good choice, I think. I When I started getting into music, when I started like really mm-hmm. developing my own taste in music, I got into Nirvana and I heard like that Pearl Jam was always kind of the the counter to, to Nirvana. Like they were always kind of in the same, like you said, Seattle scene, early 90s. And you either were a Nirvana fan or a Pearl Jam fan. So I kind of snuck into my brother's, my older brother's room when I was a kid, when I was like maybe 14, I think. And I stole or borrowed, sorry. I meant to say borrowed. Um, <laughs> the statute of uh, limitations is up, so you're all good. Yeah. <laughs> Not with my brother, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, I, I borrowed Pearl Jam's 10 and I listened to it and I never really got into it. But in recent months, I really got into like the early 90s scene again. And I, I literally was planning to get into uh, Pearl Jam again. So I'm really attracted to giving this a go as well. So I'm really excited about both of those. So I don't want to be the one who, who makes the decision. I think, Barrio, you lean more towards Bjork. Um, I'm actually good with both of them. I think Bjork is interesting. Like, I think it's it's a bit different from what we've done so far. Pearl Jam, in a way, I think it's kind of like more in our comfort zone. Yeah, oh, I, definitely. It's I think definitely less of a, a step out of our comfort zone. It's, I, uh, I was putting the question um, to you guys, but I'm actually feeling maybe Bjork could be the way to go. Yeah. Let's do Bjork. Yeah. Bjork homogenic. Yeah, it's just something that we haven't encountered, or I haven't encountered at least. So, yeah, I mean, it could go really go north or south here. So, I'm excited. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In all music, when you sort by user ratings, which I like to do, it's rated as her first album. It's ranked as first. Oh, great. Uh, That's good. Yeah. Like some people, like, I, I prefer to listen to like one of the best ranked first because I think in um, with Radiohead, like I guess there's there's a lot of differing opinion, but potentially, oh, you don't want to listen to the best one first because then you don't have the build up. But I find you always find other stuff. You know what I mean? Like you always learn to love different albums and with all like the extra tracks people have nowadays, like, you know what I mean? Like you, you don't uh, never fear running out of stuff. You know what I mean? So It has 2,500 rankings or ratings on all music, which is that a fair good. number. I, yeah. I, yeah, I tend to, I tend to kind of trust everything that has over 1K, over 1,000 okay. ratings. So this is more than enough. And 
like on all music, if you go to an album, it has like these uh, a list of like moods that you can find on the album, which mostly is contradictive, so I don't usually put a lot into that, but it has mm-hmm. cold, complex, brooding, and also freewheeling, fun, quirky, <laughs> sophisticated, good. theatrical, sentimental, trippy. So I don't know I have a I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. It's gonna be maybe more artistic than we usually do. Mm, nice. I think it's gonna be interesting. And with that, thank you, Peter, and thank you, Barrio, for staying true to our goal. And thank you, the listeners at home, for helping us along the latest stage of our quest. We hope that you join us again next episode, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. See ya. The Culture Quest podcast is brought to you by no one in particular. The best way to support us and help us grow is to tell your friends and family about us and to direct them at episodes that they might find interesting. We might start a Patreon page at some point. That way we'll be able to do some cool stuff with people who decide to actively support us, such as you'll be able to join our Discord channel and discuss the albums, movies, books we're doing before we record each episode. You'll be able to suggest and to vote on the subjects that we do. We can maybe do listening parties with the albums we've covered and who knows what else. Uh, if you think you might be interested in something like that, or you want to contact us about anything else, drop us a line. You can find all the ways to contact us on our website, culturequestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I just wanted to bring to everyone's attention all those people that are currently stuck without their phone and are forced to continue listening to this unless they pause it and then have to contemplate, you know, the state of their life and other things. So you'll probably just continue listening. I just wanted to give a bit of a shout out to a um, a website, actually. It's called givewell.org. So that's give, G-I-V-E, well, W-E, double l dot org so it's it's a dot org so it's it's legit and um basically they're the authority on who is worth giving money to in terms of charity so obviously we'll give money to friends and family if they fall on hard times but if you are thinking about giving large sums of money to um, charities it's definitely best to do your research because a lot of people just give away money and want to feel good, but it's also good to think of it as an investment and how you can do the most good. So it's not asking you to give away more money, but it's asking you to give the money away in a responsible way. And um, basically, they've just authorized eight charities. So out of all the, I want to say hundreds of thousands of charities, might be a bit lower, but they've authorized only eight. And I think it's really good to just scan through the list and um, see if you can consider donating to these charities. So um, I think that would be good if we can all sort of band together during these tough times. At the moment, it's COVID, but, you know, that will change and we're all going to need to support everyone. So this is probably one of the best evidence-based ways to do that. So, yeah, so definitely hop on to givewell.org if you're considering and hopefully those charities are like tax deductible or something in your country, which would be in your best interest. So anyway, this is not... Formal advice, but it's just a good place to go. Thank you.